If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome. This is Medicine in America, a podcast that will share the stories of physicians and other healthcare professionals who are changing the way they practice. We will hear what made them realize they had to reinvent and rethink their approach to treating patients. My name is Anthony Manson. I'm a 20-year-plus veteran of the healthcare industry, and I'm being joined today by my co-host and longtime friend and colleague, Todd Harrington. Today's episode is being sponsored by Mize, the only digital health platform focused exclusively on elevating and accelerating the importance of daily eye health. Mize is doing this by providing easy and affordable access to daily eye care routines curated by the world's foremost experts in dry eye and ocular surface disease. To find out more about Mize daily eye care routines or how to sign on as a provider, visit helpmize.com. That's H-E-L-P-M-Y-Z-E.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome. We have a really fascinating guest today. Her name is Dr. Jacqueline Thies. She is an optometrist with a residency training in neurooptometry. She's an international speaker and published author with clinical experience and a lot of research interest in neurological diseases that have serious vision impairment, everything from traumatic brain injury to Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and multiple sclerosis. And we're happy to have her on board today. Welcome, Dr. Thies. Meet Todd Harrington, my co-host. Say hi, Todd. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I thought we'd start off with you giving a little bit more background in terms of what neurooptometry is and where it kind of fits into the optometry world today. Yeah. The fun part about optometry is we're kind of the wild, wild west. And I think that's what makes neurooptometry as a field a little difficult. Every provider can be a little bit different. And essentially what we do is specifically working with patients who have vision problems from brain injury or other neurologic conditions, whether it's developmental neurologic conditions or autism, ADHD. A lot of it is trying to figure out what can I do as an optometrist to help them to functionally see better? And then what can I do to identify that the problem they have is actually from some other part of their neurologic disorder or systemic disease? I think that's kind of what makes neurooptometry a fun field to be in is you get to see these patients and then you sometimes fix them by sending them to a physical therapist or you, you, know, you send them to a neurologist because secretly they have occipital neuralgia that no one figured out. It works similar to neuroophthalmology in the fact that you're a diagnostician, but it's dissimilar from neuroophthalmology in the sense that we do more on functional adaptations and vision rehabilitation and getting them to live with what they have or rehab what they have. So I find that we're 
really complementary to neuro-ophthalmology. I love working with neuro-ophthalmology. Is this a growing field or more and more people discovering that there's this, this career path of neuro-autometry available? It's definitely growing. I think the need is expanding incredibly. So when I went into optometry school, I knew that I wanted to go into brain injury and concussion. And when I initially told people that, they told me I was nuts because the population and the patient size wasn't there. And I'd never be able to make a career out of doing just that. And I have never had a problem getting a job because actually these patients are suffering everywhere. When I graduated, there were only four residencies in the country for neurooptometry. And I think the last time I checked, there's like 10 or 12 of them. Most of the new spots are actually within the VA. So obviously with the amount of brain injury in the VA, they're recognizing how helpful neurooptometry can be as a service. Yeah, absolutely. Neat thing too is a lot of the research has changed. So before, when I was in optometry school, there was really minimal research on vision and visual vestibular rehabilitation and brain injury. A lot of brain injury management was kind of watch and wait. In 2015, there was this kind of monumental study that said, hey, actually, if you identify what the problem is and then you actively rehab that in brain injury, whatever the brain injury problem is, patients get better faster. And so since about 2015, there's been an explosion of research hmm. in OT, PT, neurooptometry, looking at active rehabilitation for patients who've had brain injury or stroke. And so the profession is monumentally growing because now we can realize, you know, we're not going to hurt people with it and you can actually really help people get better faster with it, which is super helpful. I heard the story about how you discovered this through a personal experience. Could you just tell our audience about that? Yeah. So I originally actually always wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, never wanted to be a neurooptometrist as a kid. <laughs> And I was an athlete. I played competitive soccer. I was a snowboarder and I had multiple concussions. My first one, I was at 12. I had my eighth one by 16 and I had chronic migraines. I had seen multiple neurologists and ophthalmologists for my migraines. I literally couldn't read without getting a migraine. And they kind of just told me it would get better with time. And I just had to wait it out. And by the time I got to college, I just couldn't read. I just suffered from a lot of headaches. And, and over time, you kind of just learn to adapt but I was just kind of playing this game of watch and wait. Mm -hmm. And so I went to Bucknell and part of the program that I was in had me follow different types of practitioners to make sure I wanted, you know, to go into med school. And I was following an optometrist and I had never been to an optometrist. No one had sent me to an optometrist because I see better than 2020 as an athlete. I have perfect vision. And so no one had sent me to an optometrist and I sat down and she was like, oh, well, I can do a small eye exam on you. And she did a couple of eye movement tests and she immediately was like, can you read? And I was like, no, not at all. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you have, I don't know if it was 40,000 optometrists out there. I think the majority of, of consumers, you know, go in for you know, refractory, basic refractory pair of eyeglasses and frames. And I'm just wondering is, would you say more and more becoming aware of neurooptometry and the need for either referring or, or doing some additional testing within their practice? Yeah. So I give a lot of lectures. I think that's one of the big problems is some people get afraid of mentioning it to the patient or screening for it if they don't have a neurooptometrist in their area. So I think there's a big area of growth for this in particular in telemedicine because it can expand your territory a lot more. And then I give a lot of lectures to other providers, whether it's optometry or non-optometry, so even ophthalmology primary care, on how can you screen for it? When should you refer for it? What's the benefits of referral? How can you do the rehab? So I, I'm very passionate about making the rehab accessible for people. You know, coming into the office every other day is not feasible for most adults with working jobs or, or parents. So you got to make something that's 
they can actually do on their own at home and get better. So there's kind of things like that. But the big thing for me is there's really just not enough providers, candidly. So I know when I moved to Virginia, the physician I work with was like, nobody does what you do in Virginia. And so that was one of the reasons that I moved from California to Virginia is there just really wasn't people there. And we have people all the time, like we had someone this week that actually flew in from Tennessee and they had heard about us when they were in Utah. The one nice thing is I get a lot of students who are in optometry school reach out to me on LinkedIn or things like that of like, how do I get into this? And, and I love mentoring them because the more we can get people into it, the more we can expand the services. Yeah. What about our pediatrics? I know there's high incidence of TBI related emergency room visits. I was just in the ER for my wife the other day. And, uh, you know, I think it was like a six-year-old came in with a head injury. And I know that just is increasingly common. Do you see pediatric patients too? I do. Any patient of any age with any brain injury is more than welcome to come into our practice. We do a lot of consultation in general. I do a lot of consultation with pediatricians and ER physicians for a couple of reasons. One of the big things is vision problems and brain injury don't always manifest right away. We actually found this out in my research when I was on the sidelines of athletics of sometimes I would do the eye exam right at the moment of injury and they were fine. And then the next day they would come in and it would manifest. And I've actually, there's a couple of other studies and some clinicians up in Philadelphia at Chopped mm -hmm. that are in the ER and they've noticed the same thing of, you know, if someone goes to the ER right away, they may actually pass some of the visual vestibular screening tests for concussion, but then get it a few hours or 72 hours later. So one of the big things that we always say is just because you went to the ER and got cleared doesn't mean over the next 72 hours, your symptoms may evolve. So you might actually get diagnosed a few days later. So it is really important if you go to the ER to follow up with your pediatrician. That's a big thing is that sometimes people just don't follow up because they went to the ER and were told they were fine. But sometimes you miss the diagnosis initially. And that's not because of the clinician. It's actually the nature of the condition. It can take time to develop. And then the other thing is that it's like up to 80%, it's a pretty high number of concussions acutely have vision problems. And of that 80%, 80% will go away all on their own, meaning the majority of patients really don't need to see me. And I always say that, you know, you don't need to send every acute vision problem to see me, but you need to monitor them. So there's about 20 to 30% of patients who had vision problems acutely that for whatever reason, just don't recover back to hundred percent at four weeks. Those are the patients that need rehab. Those are the ones that need to be actively referred to a neurooptometrist or vestibular PTs are doing a lot of this as well, which is helpful because, again, we have a provider gap issue. And the chronic ones need to be rehabbed because if you don't rehab it, it just persists, right? And it can persist, like in my case, it persisted for years. And the nice thing is it can go away if you intervene. When you started your own practice within the Virginia neurooptometry was that a hard thing for you to do or you were joining another practice? Could you just like talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. So I cold started a private practice in March of 2020, which I wouldn't really recommend to anyone ever. It was not the best timing in general, uh, especially. And I think, you know, when I look back on it, when I was in San Francisco, so that's where I, I, I was kind of in the North Bay in California and I'd worked there for a decade. I was very well known. I had referrals from every branch because I'm very big on multidisciplinary care. So neuropsych, neurology, neurosurgery, orthopedics, PT, OT, I had a great referral network. I ended up wanting to just move and relocate just to kind of try something new. And the way that I found my current practice, which is at the Concussion Care Center of Virginia, is Dr. Nathan Zasler is a world-renowned brain injury physiatrist. And I had talked to him on the phone and he had kind of said, you know, if you 
come here, you can sublet space and start your own practice. And you can do whatever you want, however you want to do it, right? Because he doesn't know what I do and, and he's never going to dictate how to do it, which was such a wonderful opportunity. And so we made this decision in 2019. And so I moved across the country and cold started. Obviously, I moved here and then just like hung out in my apartment for like six months. <laughs> so the nuances of that was... I underestimated how much little minutia there is in cold starting a practice. So it was actually kind of a blessing in disguise of how much actually time I had to dedicate to setting some stuff up. The hardest part for me is I am a subspecialty practice. I don't do any primary care. I don't do glasses. I don't do contacts. And for the main reason of that is I want those providers that can do those services to do those services for the patient. I am here mainly just for the brain injury aspect. I fix that and then I give you your patient back which means I'm fully referral-based. And I literally cold started in a time that you can't network. Right. <laughs> you really can't go to a doctor and say, hi, I'm here because it's COVID. Even though I couldn't network and nobody knew who I was, and it did take me a lot longer, I think, than normal, mm -hmm. my practice was decently busy within about when I opened up. And I think it was decently busy in about three to six months which just tells you how many backlogs and a lot of these patients that were referring that's to me. That's oh. incredible. Because that's yeah. the other thing, right? Is if technically people are just hanging out at home, they're not running around doing like sports are canceled. Right. What kind of concussions are we getting? No one's driving around getting in motor vehicle accidents. How are we getting these brain injuries? Mm -hmm. I would say the majority of patients when I started had had their injuries for years and no one had been around to fix it. So when I saw them, you know, they'd just been suffering for years, which was kind of heartbreaking for me a little bit. I don't know if you saw the New York Times article today based on the Boston University CTE study of brains. I don't know if you saw that. It was pretty... I didn't see the one from today. No, tell me about it. Yeah, they basically, you know, looked at 151 brains of, of people that have families that had donated after CTE and found that, you know, the majority of them were dramatically, severely damaged. They also did a in kind of a post-registry and found a lot of these people had died of suicide which was kind of staggering that people living with this have to, uh, you know, depression, severe depression was common. Very, very emotional article. Yeah. So that doesn't surprise right. me at all. Of course. For a couple of reasons. Number one, because I always like to say this, you know, when you read those studies, I think it terrifies people. And it, as it should, I think we don't know, we don't know about brain injury. We don't know, we don't know about subconcussive blows. We're learning. Not every person that gets a concussion is going to get CTE. We don't yet know why some people do and some people don't. We don't know if everyone does get a little bit or how long it takes. I mean, there's so much we don't know about it. I think the big thing is just being aware that repeatedly hitting your head is not good for you. The big thing for me is there comes a point where, you know, there should be a discussion about your overall long-term brain health and whether you want to keep playing your sport. Because we do know that some people do end up getting permanent damage. We don't know who, why, or, or how. So that's that's a big thing too, is maybe it's it's having a history of brain injury and then doing these three environmental things that that triggers it, right? Like we don't know. That being said, you know, mental health and brain injury is something that is so important to address. I see all of these patients, and again, because we do, I do chronic care, and which means a lot of my patients have had these symptoms for months or years. And so there's some problems with that. So let's pretend, for example, we get eye movement dysfunction after a concussion, which is very common, which means when I move my eyes, it makes me dizzy, nauseous, or headachy. Well, if it's severe enough and it prohibits me from reading or it prohibits me from using the computer or returning to my sport, and I'm long enough kind of not allowed to participate in my activities of daily living that I enjoy, if somebody loves to play their sport and you pull them from your sport, it's depressive. If, if somebody loves to work or I will say this, like, 
our whole world is on our phones, right? Imagine, and I, I always say a lot of my patients said they loved the pandemic because they felt like other people finally understood what it was like to feel isolated at home. Right. But then I said, but imagine you're in the pandemic, but you couldn't actually get on your computer or your mm. phone because that makes you dizzy, nauseous, and headachy. So you have to stay at home in social isolation with nothing. Of course, you're going to be depressed. <laughs> and that can mm. also play into your rehab. And, and then the other aspect too is that yeah. emotions come from the brain. And so there's something also to recognizing that sometimes emotional dysregulation after a brain injury is chemical, but also there's a world of patients who a lot of their symptoms in brain injury get better when they get put on an antidepressant or an anti-anxiolytic because chemicals come from the brain. You had a brain injury. Emotions can come from the brain and you have to treat kind of that whole person. And then on top of that, having a brain injury is also an emotional trauma to go through as well. And that's what makes chronic brain injury and especially patients with chronic pain after a brain injury difficult to manage and why it's so important to co-manage with other providers. I have a separate unrelated to uh, TBI, but uh, another favorite subject of mine, of course. When you think about the way people behave with their eyes every day, they kind of take it for granted, right? Unless they have an acute issue, there's just really not a lot of focus on daily eye care. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are in terms of Obviously, within dentistry, we, we floss, we brush our teeth. Do you think it would make a difference if people did focus more on their daily eye care? Absolutely. A lot of eye hygiene is environmental as well. The majority of the population suffers from dry eye. I think we can all attribute a lot of the dry eye issues to the fact that we're all on computers now and we're sedentary and we're not eating great diets and we're not. So I think a lot of eye health is actually just regular maintenance of getting outside, looking far away, not being on the computer the whole time. And if you know you're in a job on the computer, you have to proactively recognize that if you're constantly reading, your blink rate's going to go down, you're going to get dry eyes, chronic dry eye and can cause chronic inflammation. And you can end up kind of going down this spiral that then causes the discomfort. And so you can prevent a lot of that with good eye hygiene, with good kind of just hygiene in general and, and think about your eyes a little bit. I always tell patients, my goal is to get you to not have to think about your eyes, but I want you to think enough about them that you proactively take breaks, that you lubricate them before it's a problem. You know, with dry eye, I always say, if you wait until you can feel it, it's too late. <laughs> and that's kind of like hydration. You don't wait until you're right. so thirsty, yeah. you can't feel your tongue anymore. And then taking your makeup off. That's another one too, right? <laughs> Just like right. Make, makeup in general is going to clog the oil glands and, and cause issues. And it's you can wear makeup all you want. It should be eye safe. And there's a lot of things on makeup, but you should take it off at the end of the day. And that can be huge just for hygiene. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a need for a lot of uh, education around daily eye care. And I hope we invest more money and more time doing that. And now a word from our sponsor. Since its launch in 2022, Mize has brought hundreds of doctors into its platform, providing daily eye care management to thousands of patients. To find out more about Mize and how they are helping make eye care part of everyone's daily self-care routine or how to sign on as a provider, visit helpmize.com. That's H-E-L-P-M-Y-Z-E.com. We're just curious where, if people want to learn more about neurooptometry, where could they go online to find out more or even talk to you? NORA, the Neurooptometric Rehab Association, that is an organization that does a find a provider. So that's super helpful. I will guide patients to go there. So that if they're out of state and they're trying to find someone that does something similar to what I do, I say go to NORA, find a provider, look up their background. Everyone, like I said, everyone does things differently. My website, www.virginianeurooptometry.com, we try to keep kind of up-to-date information on just different things that they can learn about a little bit. 
We also have a blog and I, I do that blog with the Concussion Care Center. And I love that blog for the main reason of I'm big on trying to help people like I don't care. I don't need to see a patient individually. I just want to really help people. And so every month, one of our providers in our practice writes an, an interesting topic that we feel people should know. So it's a very variable blog. We've had things on, you know, post-traumatic pituitary dysfunction and brain fog and, and things like that. My favorite thing about that blog, I wrote an article on cervicogenic eye pain. So eye pain that's coming from the neck. And we actually got a phone call last week from a patient in like Pennsylvania who said that they read the article and they had been to multiple eye care providers for their eye pain, and never got better. And then because they read the article, they went to a physical therapist and had them work on their neck and their eye pain went away for the first time in five years. Wow. And that was like the coolest thing for me because yeah. I was like, I write these blogs all the time. And you're like, I don't know who's reading these. <laughs> and so it was kind of nice to get that feedback from the patient of like, thank you so much for writing that because it made me actually go find the right provider. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Thies, for joining us today and talking about neurooptometry, a growing but little known specialty, but so important for diagnosis and treatment of visual impairment from things like brain injury to Parkinson's. If you enjoyed this episode of Medicine America, we have a lot more episodes coming. So please subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to rate and review the show. Also, please tell your colleagues and friends about it. I'm your host, Anthony Manson. Until next time. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.